apologize for those technical difficulties during the confession, especially on a Sunday where my voice doesn't want to cooperate. So uh, we believe it's all figured out now. Uh, So in 2024, as Paul mentioned during the announcements, we're trying to underpaint our life with the Psalms. And to kick that off, we're going to start a four-part mini-series in the book of Psalms for the month of January. After that, we'll be preaching through Hebrews. But for the month of January, we're going to look at a few Psalms together. So to kick that off this morning, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. You can find one of the blue Bibles in a chair in front of you. And the page on that Bible is page 448. 448. So, Psalm 1. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You may be seated. Please do take a moment to reflect on God's word. The Psalms are considered by some scholars to be one of the most complete books in the entire Bible. At the very least, the most complete book in the entire Old Testament. It is, it's worth noting that it is the most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament. It's quoted 68 times throughout the New Testament. Martin Luther called the Psalms a Bible in miniature. And the reason why he called it that is because if you were to read through the Psalms, which we hope you do this year, you'll see a wonderful summary of biblical history. It does retell the story of God's people. Uh, You'll see a summary, a, a great summary of theology. If you ever wondered what did Old Testament believers believe, you can find it all in the Psalms. It points forward to Christ in maybe a more direct way than any other Old Testament book. And it's all set to poetry. Its original purpose was for worship. When, when, when believers came to worship like we are today, they sang the Psalms. But what makes the Psalms most unique is actually how it tells us about ourselves. John Calvin is known for calling the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. If you wanted to look and see what the human soul is like or what the human soul experiences, what it feels, you look to the Psalms. He says there's not a single emotion that a human can experience that isn't expressed somewhere in the Psalms. And it's important for us to remember uh, as you read through the Psalms, this isn't just God's word given to us. It, It is God's word. It is breathed out by him 
But these are also the words of real men, real believers who experienced real life. So every single human emotion that you could ever experience, we can see in the Psalms. And the first emotion comes in the very first word of Psalm 1. Blessed. Blessed. Blessed, simply put, means happy. I know a lot of us, we, when we hear the word blessed, we, we, it just sounds like a religious word. We might not even think about what it means. But the simplest way to translate blessed is happy. Everybody wants to be happy. When our founding fathers wrote the Declaration of Independence, they, they said that we had unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But they didn't actually tell us how to be happy. In 2013, Pharrell Williams released a song titled Happy. It charted number one in 22 countries and was streamed over 500 million times. They even released a 24-hour music video where it's just the song Happy being played on repeat for 24 hours, but each every three minutes when the song restarts, there's like a different dance sequence to it. The song was this incredible celebration of happiness, but even that song doesn't tell you how to be happy. Everyone wants happiness, but very few can tell you where to find it. In Psalm 1, God himself, tells us how to be happy. And and I want us to just stop there for a moment because we're saying something that might sound provocative to you. And it's that God really wants you to be happy. It might not be convenient happiness. It might not be immediate happiness. It might not be easy happiness. But he's the only true source of real and everlasting happiness happiness. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if you were to ask me the definition of a Christian, I would say he is one who, since believing in Christ, is the happiest person in all the world and desires everyone else to be equally as happy. The only way to be truly happy is to be happy in God. And the point of Psalm 1 is very simple. The point of Psalm 1 is that there are only two ways to live. One way leads to happiness, and the other way leads to perishing. So first is the way of happiness. Verses 1 through 3 describe what the happy man is like. And the first thing the author does is tell us what the happy person doesn't do. He, he, He gives us a picture in the negative He's saying that true happiness and certain lifestyles cannot coexist. So look again with me at verse 1. Blessed is the man, or happy is the man, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So there are three things that the happy person doesn't do. First, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, when you hear the word wicked, it probably sounds like a very harsh term describing someone that's like a supervillain. Maybe you're thinking of a witch or something like that. Um, But when you read the Psalms, the wicked is actually the baseline term 
for anyone who doesn't know God. It's just simply describing the the non-believer. It's actually worse to be considered a sinner or a scoffer, as we see later in verse 1. So so don't think this is a super harsh term. This is just baseline, someone who doesn't know God. And walking in Scripture is often a metaphor for how you live. So to walk in the counsel of the wicked is, is... Simply to walk or to live in the advice, in the mindset, in the patterns of the non-believing world. Now, here's the scary part. Is that living this way, what we can describe as being worldly, it isn't always obvious. The, The counsel of the wicked oftentimes isn't hostile towards God. The counsel of the wicked that's being talked about here, it it doesn't always lead to atheism. Don't think of it as simply outright opponents of the faith. It's not always that. The counsel isn't always hostile. Sometimes it's just simply apathetic. The counsel of the wicked doesn't always result in atheism, but it does result in caring less about God. But the happy person doesn't listen to this worldly advice. Second, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. So each description here gets gets more and more comfortable with sin. At first, he's just walking in the counsel of the wicked, and now he stops walking and he stands in the way of sinners. So he was was walking, just listening to the non-believing voices at first, and now he, he stops and he's looking for a conversation. He's starting to talk back. He's looking for a friendship. This is most likely referring to the company that you keep around you. Who do you surround yourself with? Who are your closest friends? That's, that's what he's talking about here. If, 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 if you're trying to live your life in a way that is pursuing God, that is pleasing to him, but you surround yourself with those who, that, that, that isn't their mission, that isn't what they're about, you're setting yourself up for a real struggle. And, and, and the point isn't to be harsh or mean-spirited. The point isn't to just cut people off. The point isn't to give up on evangelism. That's, that's not the point here, but the point is, who's your core community? Who, who are those that you surround yourself with that, that point you in the direction of Jesus? That's what he's talking about here. And third, he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. So he's gone from walking to standing, and now he's gone from standing to sitting. He's kicking his feet back, and he's going to stay for a while. He's now become completely comfortable with sin. But it actually is worse than it sounds like, because in ancient Israel, sitting was the position of a teacher. Rabbis sat when they taught. So for someone to be sitting in the seat of a scoffer means they have now become the scoffer. They have now become the the influence on others to tear down their faith. They're no longer just apathetic like the wicked. They're no longer just sowing wild oats like the sinner. But they're now actively oppressing the faith of others. This is what happens, and this really happened. 
This is what happens when a famous pastor deconstructs his faith and then releases an online course to help you deconstruct too. I read recently that uh, there was a, um, a man who at one time was a very popular Christian artist, music artist, and then he left the faith, but for some reason decided to keep being involved with Christian music, which is, which is a whole other issue in and of itself. But then recently he rewrote the lyrics of Amazing Grace to take out the word wretch. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because he said, anything that says I'm a wretch is not good news. You you see, people like that are now sitting in the seat of a scoffer. They're actively oppressing the faithful. So to be truly happy, there are things that we have to remove from our life. And this type of advice that we're hearing in the beginning of Psalm 1 is is really not attractive. It's way more appealing to just say, hey, all you have to do is add this to your life. But he's he's coming out of the gate saying, if you want to be happy, there are certain things you have to subtract. And, And we'll get to the things that we will add. But sometimes we just need someone to tell us to stop. I'll give you an example of this. For about seven months, I've been uh, dealing with some forms of lower back pain, most likely from, from a, a, a bulged disc, and it, it will get better, um, but I've made some mistakes along the way that have slowed down my uh, recovery process. And I even recently hired a back pain coach to help me kind of navigate this, because those of you who've experienced back pain can know it's pretty complicated sometimes. And I told him, I said, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I've been, I, I've been to physical therapy. I've been doing all of the stretches and the exercises that I found on, on YouTube and on the internet, and, and yet my symptoms are getting worse. And he said, Matt, this is what you need to do. Right now, you need to stop everything. Stop your exercises. Stop your stretches. Stop Googling your symptoms. And you need to do an audit of your life and identify the triggers to your pain. The way you sleep, the way you stand, the way you exercise, the way you put on your shoes. And if something causes pain, take note of it and stop it. Or if it's something that you have to do, modify it. He said, we'll get to exercises, we'll get to rehab, we'll get to those things. But first, you need to do an audit of your life key phrase, and identify the triggers. I think the psalmist in Psalm 1 is telling us to do an audit of our life. Identify the things that we've been pursuing for happiness that have actually caused us harm and has been dishonoring the Lord. Now, before you think Psalm 1 is just like the old therapist skit with Bob Newhart yelling, stop it, to every one of his clients, the old mad TV sketch, Just wait, Christian living isn't just the avoidance of sin. It does include the avoidance of sin, but that's not all it is. But it's replacing it with a new delight. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The blessed man, the happy person, 
delights in the law of God. And this is not joyless, checkbox Christianity. This isn't merely reading my Bible because I'm supposed to. This is a heart that says, along with Psalm 119, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And have you ever thought that about Scripture? His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, law is the Hebrew word Torah, which simply means teaching or instruction of the Lord. So when you hear the word law, don't think just about the commandments. Like, don't think it's, we're just talking about the Ten Commandments here. But when you hear the word law, he's talking about all the teaching of the Lord, all of the instruction of Scripture. The happy person is one who delights in all of Scripture. We delight in the gospel because it tells us how to be saved and how we are saved. But we also delight in the commandments. We, we do, like I said, the law doesn't only mean commandments, but it does include the commandments. So that even when we read things like the Ten Commandments, we, we delight in them because they're a description of Jesus to us. They, and they show us how, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how we can love our neighbor as ourselves. We, we should delight in all of it. Lord, thank you for your word. So I want us to go down memory lane for a minute. Do you remember when you first fell in love with Scripture? Is there a time in your life, maybe, maybe you were already a Christian for a while, but there came a moment in your life where you said, God's word it has so much more treasure than I ever imagined or dreamed. I've worked in a, some form of youth ministry for about 10 years up until this job. And uh, some of those years as a volunteer, some of those years part-time, some of those years full-time. And my favorite part of it was when I'd be sitting across from a teenager and somewhere in the conversation they'd say, Matt, I, I've been a Christian for some time, I think. But recently, I feel like I've really fell in love with God's word. It just makes so much more sense to me now. I love reading it. It's so nourishing to my soul. And I think that's, that's what we pray for because it's that kind of moment that sets you up for life. To not just be dependent on teachers, but to, but to be able to plunge the depths of God's word yourself. It's a beautiful thing. For me, I was a senior in high school, and a young life leader simply, I mean, he, he was just an untrained college student, but what he did is that he led his Bible study in such a way that forced me to actually look at the Bible, not just hear about it, but to look at it, and it changed my life. One year later, I come to UNCW, I come visit Christ Community Church, and, and Paul's preaching in such a way that makes me look at my Bible. And its words were sweeter than honey to me. And that's something that's never changed about Christ Community Church. And we pray that it never does change. No matter who's here, no matter who's preaching from this pulpit. That we're a church that loves the Bible. And if any visitor comes through our doors, believer or non-believer, we want them to see how much we love the Bible because we want them to love the Bible too. Our delight is in the word of God. 
Now, something that I, I don't want us to miss is that when Psalm 1 was written, it was written in a time where all they had was the Old Testament. In fact, we, we're not quite sure on the date, so depending on when it was written, they might have only had the first five books completed. But okay, maybe they had some prophets and some other books, and, and uh, maybe, maybe even it was written at the very end in order to be an introduction to the Psalms. So let's imagine this was written when the entire Old Testament was completed. Even then, if an Old Testament believer could delight in the Word of God before Christ, how much more should we? We had a slavery that was far worse than Egypt. We have a redemption that is far better than the Red Sea. They had the gospel in shadow form. We have the gospel fully revealed to us. We have 66 books, God's complete revelation, and, and the Bible is more accessible than ever before in human history. Don't you see that, that people that lived in the Bible times longed to have what we have now? We have even more to delight in. We have even more to delight in. Second half of verse 2, And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, meditation in, in Eastern mysticism is this idea of emptying your mind, but biblical meditation is actually the exact opposite of that. We're trying to fill our mind with Scripture. The, uh, the, the goal is to fill it. The word meditation literally means to mumble to yourself, to speak out loud to yourself, to not just read Scripture, but to ponder it, to repeat it to yourself throughout the day. Meditation is the bridge between Bible study and prayer. Or I like to think of it as meditation is spiritual chewing. It helps you digest Scripture and get all of the nutrients out of it. And this is where something like memorization becomes extremely helpful. Because if you're memorizing scripture, you, you have to meditate on it in order to memorize it. And as you'll see in our Psalms reading plan that we're doing as a congregation, there's a psalm to memorize for every month. Now you may be thinking, if I read my Bible and I don't delight in it, just be honest, sometimes we read and we don't. Feels like it does nothing. We're not sure what it means. If I read my Bible and I don't delight in it, what am I missing? What do I do if I feel nothing? Now, some of you need to hear this. I want you to be encouraged by this. Delighting in God's word doesn't mean that every single individual experience of reading it is going to be this transformative, explosive, life-transforming experience. It doesn't mean that every single time you pick up your Bible that you're just going to be blown away. But that's what we need meditation for. That's the very point of us having to meditate on Scripture. So if you're asking this morning, how can I delight in God's Word? This is John Piper's answer. He says, number one, pray for new taste buds on the tongue of your heart. And two, meditate 
on the staggering promises of God to his people. In other words, the greatest treasures are the ones we have to dig for. And meditation is how we dig. So if your time in Scripture is feeling dry, if your time in Scripture is feeling like you're going through the motions, you're not getting that much out of it, I would say maybe what you need isn't the entire Bible in a year. Maybe you're simply going too fast. Maybe what you need is something a lot slower with more meditation and memorization, which is what we're trying to do in the Psalms together as a congregation this year. So if that's you, I would recommend trying that out and see what God does. In verse 3, he gives us a picture of, of what it looks like to delight in God's word. In other words, like if I do delight in God's word, what is my life going to look like? And he gives us a picture in verse 3. He is like a tree. Trees in scripture are often symbolic of life. So to be a tree is to be full of life. He's planted. In other words, he's rooted. He's secure. By streams of water, he's tapped into the life source, into God himself, that yields its fruit in its season, yields the fruit of the Spirit. He's saying you'll have a fruitful Christian life full of love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And notice that the fruit that it yields is in its season. And I think what he means by that is that different seasons require different types of fruit. If you're in a season of suffering, it requires patience. If you're in a season of uncertainty, it requires faith. If you're in a season of temptation, it requires self-control. But if you're planted in God's word, you can be assured that the Lord will provide that fruit for you in the exact time that you need it. Its leaf does not wither. I love this because it's important to note he doesn't say there won't be harsh conditions. He doesn't say there'll never be a drought. There'll never be a storm. He doesn't say there'll never be cancer. There'll never be bankruptcy. He just says, even in those harsh conditions, the tree might bend, but it won't break. Its leaf won't wither. It will continue to produce fruit. And in all that he does, he prospers. Prosperity should not be a dirty word to Christians. Now, it's, it's a shame that the, the health and wealth, the so-called prosperity gospel has kind of put a stain on this word uh, because what they get wrong is they think God, God's designed our life to always be successful from a worldly point of view. And that's not what he's talking about here, but what he is saying is that our soul will be prosperous. In all that he does, he prospers. Even when he suffers, he prospers. Even when he's struggling, he prospers. But when he's abounding and when he's in a season of joy, he's also prospering. So would you describe your soul as prosperous this morning? Do you want it to be? To have a prosperous soul, you need to be firmer and deeper rooted in the word of God. And meditate on it until you delight in it. 
So the secret to happiness is not complicated, but it's not easy either. But the thing that often gets in our way is, and and if you're like me, I, I know this to be true, is that we still flirt with other things that we think are gonna bring us happiness. We, we, we tended to flirt with other options. And that's why John Calvin says, the only way we can be motivated to pursue happiness in God is if we're convinced that the ungodly are miserable. And it's hard because they so often look happy. And they might so often even believe that they're happy. But even that shadow of happiness that they're feeling for a moment, there will come a day when that happiness ends forever. Because they've built their life, they've built their happiness on something that fades, on sinking sand. And that is where our psalm transitions to our second and much shorter, don't worry, point. (laughs) The way of perishing. There are only two ways to live. There's the way that leads to happiness that we talked about at length, and then there's the way that leads to perishing. Verse 4, the wicked are not so. You know, the Hebrew is actually emphatic. The word not comes first, so a better reading would be something like, not so are the wicked. Whatever great description we just read about the righteous, absolutely none of it applies to those who don't know the Lord. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. You know, think of like a a farmer threshing grain. What they want, the edible part, is the kernel. And the chaff that's on the outside, that's that's inedible. It's, It's good for nothing. And after they've removed the chaff, all it takes is a simple gust of wind. And it's gone. And that's actually a really sad picture. Because the one who doesn't know Jesus, they think they're planted. They think they have life. They think they have happiness coming their way. And yet just a simple gust of wind. And they're gone. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. In heaven there will be a congregation. In heaven, there will be a church. And in that church, there will not be a single sinner in it. Now, if you're a believer, you're a sinner now. I'm a sinner now. But by the grace of Jesus, we are forgiven sinners. But when we are in heaven, by the grace of Jesus, we will be sinners no longer. We will be holy, righteous, pure, and happy. Charles Spurgeon says, sinners cannot live in heaven. They would be out of their element. It would be easier for a fish to live in a tree than the wicked to live in paradise. Heaven would be an intolerable hell for a sinner, even if he was allowed to enter. What he means is that God is not going to force someone who hates him to live with him forever. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said there's two types of people in this world. There's one, uh, there's the one type 
and heaven that says to God, thy will be done. And then there's the other type where God says to us, thy will be done. You don't want me, then I won't make you live with me. And verse 6 summarizes the entire psalm into one simple point. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice that it's not just the wicked that will perish, but their entire way will perish. Meaning everything they've lived for, everything they've built up, everything they've accumulated for themselves, everything they could possibly be proud of, gone, forgotten, remembered no more. And they will be cut off from God, the source of all happiness, for all eternity. And then they will realize that every single bit of happiness they ever experienced in this life was from the gracious hand of God towards them. Do you remember Jesus telling the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? The rich man is in hell. And do you remember what his one request was, or his first request? was? He said, could you just send Lazarus to dip his finger in a little bit of water and cool my tongue? And even that wasn't given to him. Even, and I think what he's getting at there is that even the smallest glimpses of happiness and comfort that we take for granted do not exist in hell. Because we are cut off from the source of any happiness that we ever experience, and that's God himself. Now, in today's world, any talk of hell or judgment or it can be quickly labeled as hateful or unkind. But the fact that God is telling us this in his word, don't you see this is actually the compassion of the Lord for you? This is love speech. Jesus is pleading with us this morning through this psalm saying, please don't go that way. I want you to find happiness. And the only way you can find happiness is in me. The only way you can find happiness is by trusting in me. He doesn't want you to go the way that perishes. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. To be happy, you have to be righteous. But the Bible is incredibly clear, and this is where the problem is. The Bible is incredibly clear that none of us are righteous on our own that we are born into unrighteousness. We are born into sin. And the only way that we can be made righteous is by trusting and believing in the one righteous man, Jesus Christ, who suffered the penalty that we deserved on the cross and was raised again for new life for us. In fact, if you really think about it, the only man that Psalm 1 perfectly describes is Jesus. He is the blessed man. He is the happy man. Even though he suffered, even though he was a man of sorrows, he was the happiest man to ever live because his delight was in God. 
So this morning on a communion Sunday, what a wonderful reminder that by trusting in Christ, his righteousness becomes your righteousness, but also his happiness becomes your happiness. Let's read uh, the words of institution, or let me read the words of institution from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is from the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So like Paul mentioned, on the cross, Christ broke his body for us and for our sins. And like the cup, he poured out his blood for us. And as you come forward this morning, the bread remains bread and the Juice remains juice. But when we eat with the mouth of faith, our soul is nourished. Do you want a prosperous soul this morning? One of the ways to do that is to feed on Christ and the communion table that he gives us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for these common elements of bread and juice that are used for an uncommon purpose. Lord, thank you for giving us a great picture of the gospel. God, I pray that everyone here today, that they would pursue happiness this day by pursuing you. God, would they delight in you and delight in your word. So be with us now as we come to your table. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.